1: The way we treat expertise is bound to be a crucial part of the way our societies develop from here. The lesson from history is that expertise has always been a fragile endeavour, fraught with political risks and tangled with all kinds of interests. But it's difficult to see how we can operate without it. Or can we? This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Isabella Kaminska. This week, AlphaVille's Jamie Powell and Tom Hale chat with Will Davies, a political economist at Goldsmiths University. His new book, Nervous States, seeks to explore and diagnose some of the current tensions around the concept of expertise and the sense of a rising post-truth narrative. Here he is on the period of great disorientation in 2016 that inspired it.
2: I mean, it immediately became clear to me and many people that this wasn't just an unsettling of the political status quo, but that the status of experts and the status of even truth itself seemed to have been thrown into some doubt by political movements that had succeeded without seeming to be based on any particular set of um, rational uh, analysis or evidence of of, of of what types of welfare they might be generating and so on. Obviously, Brexit is the kind of classic example of this, that all of the economic analysis and the statistical evidence against Brexit seems to have been disregarded. Uh, And we're now on a path, um, Britain is on a path, where even the best case scenario is is leaving the European Union with only moderate harm to its macroeconomy and and, and, and standard of living. So I was interested in, 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 in what was this political um, moment um, and, and why had many assumptions about the sort of authority of of facts and figures in public life gone into decline and rather than sort of focus purely on the kind of, you know, the status of the liars in all of this, who I mean they deserve our condemnation, but rather than purely focus on that or to sort of suggest that um, I mean there was a whole kind of post-truth narrative that that developed around this time as well, I wanted to I suppose cast a longer historical historical and philosophical perspective on these events by saying, first of all, why and and how and when did we reach these particular liberal assumptions about the status and authority of experts and facts in public life? And that part of the book goes the whole way back to the mid 17th century and looks at the origins of government as we know it really of, of the idea that politics should be founded or policy at any rate should be founded on on the analysis of, of, of numbers and of and of evidence
3: I think that's a very good summary and 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 within the kind of let's call it in a very kind of overwrought sense the kind of collapse of technocratic politics or the collapse in the faith in it economics became very data and numbers and statistics based in the mm. late 60s mm. and do you think that now we're kind of beginning to see the kind of unwinding of that
2: I don't think that I mean economics. Um, uh, my understanding, and I'm not an economist, um, and there may be listeners who who are sort of much closer to this stuff than Neither me. Are but,
3: Neither <laughs> are we. Neither are we.
2: But I mean, you know, my understanding is that you know the, the sort of aftermath of the of the global financial crisis in 2007, eight, nine has led to obviously a lot of soul searching by economists, but it hasn't necessarily led to a sort of loss of trust in the possibilities of data. I mean, there is now a sort of you know, there's, there's big data is seen as offering. Uh, opportunities, the uh, macroprudential paradigm of financial regulation potentially has much greater data requirements than than what came before. I mean, after all, the sort of more laissez-faire perspective of financial regulation of, of the pre-2007 world kind of assumed that the, the models and the knowledge of the various market actors themselves would be often adequate for um, the handling of risk and that actually the regulators and the central banks weren't going to have such uh, uh, requirements placed on them to actually sort of develop a picture of, of, of the economy. Um, so I don't think that there's a sort of, um, within the kind of technocratic elites themselves, I don't think that, that trust in numbers has declined. What I, I think clearly, there was never an age where the entire uh, public was beholden to headline indicators of, of, of macroeconomics and, and, and so on. So what you're
3: saying GDP doesn't make us richer?
2: Well, what what I'm saying is that uh, uh, I think that I'm not saying that the democratic elections have ever necessarily been won by by the person who has the best statistical analysis, but the Keynesian heyday of, of, of 1945 to the mid 1970s. You know GDP became a plausible indicator of progress because broadly speaking, when GDP went up, um, the vast majority of people 's lives did also improve, so there was a kind of a correlation between people 's first hand experiences of the world and what the technocrats uh, in whitehall and, and and the Bank of England and elsewhere um saw was was going on with the economy, which is not a, a concept that you know many people really identify with, particularly what I think changed over the course of the um uh, 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 of the, the the neoliberal era of the 1980s onwards was that mounting inequality, uh, and not just mounting inequality, but also levels of inequality that are going on where the closer you are to the very top of the income spectrum, the faster your, your, your income and wealth has risen over that period. So that means that even if you're doing quite well, those above you are doing even better, so to speak, um, means that um, the, the, the capacity of indicators like GDP to sort of capture a common experience has gone into decline in various ways. And this is particularly acute in the United States, where we know, thanks to Thomas Piketty. Uh, work on inequality that 50% of people experienced no increase in their real income between the late 1970s uh, and today. This means that half of society has not experienced any economic progress. So the language of progress which was the sort of um, lingua franca of the Democrat Party of, of, over that period of sort of trying to generate kind of growth and progress and productivity gains and so on, and you know that's what economics is concerned with, was was sort of effectively leaving out half of the population. Um, now, what that explains—I'm not saying that directly explains something like the election of Donald Trump. It, I think it, in pockets it probably does, but I think that um, statistics in various ways, economic statistics, have lost their descriptive validity. Now, economists aren't, you know, they don't see themselves necessarily as interested in descriptive validity, but, you know,
4: politicians should be, I think. You know, when I was reading your descriptions of, of the way the political landscape's recently changed, it seems like you're drawing quite a strong distinction between this kind of uh, 1980s onwards era of what we think of now as very technocratic, very centralised, stably growing Western governments. Mm. Is it, it, the feeling that that there was a specific era of technocratic, economically informed leadership that's now Ended. Certainly, I mean, I think. Well, I mean, in some ways, you know, in the, the sort of language
2: that the, the sort of <laughs> FT readers sort of recognise, it was sort of that there was correspondence to the great moderation of of, of kind of roughly sort of 1990 mm. to 2007, where
3: so they were there was kind of stable growth, low yeah, inflation, low, un- low inflation, low unemployment, unemployment. So, so there was central bank independence,
2: central bank independence, yeah. Dick Gordon Brown's famous "The End of Boom and Bust," uh, this sort of thing, um, where effectively, and of course, there was the famous Francis Fukuyama "End of History." Um, thesis and so on, but it was technocratic in the sense that, to all intents and purposes, a lot of people came to the belief that that the answers of economic macroeconomic policy making had more or less been discovered, pretty much, um, and that, that this meant that yes, there was a role for technocracy, but and crucially, I mean, this is rather outside the limits of my book, but it's something I'm quite interested in anyway. But but crucially, I mean, central to the what oh, I would call the ideology of that of that era was the notion that the central questions of economic policy. Should be taken out of the realms of, of, of democratic politics uh, for our own benefit, not just because these people are sort of bad, but but yeah. because but because it would actually create better economic policymaking. So the the, the great moderation of of, of 90, so roughly nineteen ninety to two thousand seven seemed to confirm that the truth of that that claim that actually technocracy delivers better economic policy than democracy. Um, now the global financial crisis effectively sort of pulled the rug out from underneath that, that project. And in that sense, I think that um, economic policymaking has been revealed
4: as nakedly political all over again. I mean, I mean just, just to delve into the details of the way that 90s technocratic regime played itself out, that on, on the one hand, you could say that the experts would... Or, the, you know, the economists would analyze things and they'd have complex formulations and they'd advise politicians who would then uh, make a decision based on the evidence, evidence-based policymaking. On the other hand, you could say that the politicians were always, always had an instinctive allegiance to a particular, you know, ideological mm. course of action. And they would then marshal the evidence mm. that supported that 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 thinking. Um, it's I mean, I, I, yeah. in, in terms of the way we think about this, and you, if you go back, you know, a long way through history, you could say that the 19th century, the administration of the British Empire, the use of classical literature to justify mm. certain decisions, the, the use of religious texts, use of the U.S. Constitution as, as just this external source of authority mm. to to distribute and mediate the conflicts between the factions that control governments. Mm is isn't it quite difficult for us to establish exactly when something is is evidence based and when something is just you know there's just one other layer
3: there's a new authority yeah there's there's another yeah, layer I'm, not, from
2: I'm not so I'm not I'm not trying to sort of paint a kind of um very rosy picture of sort of um a, a kind of Larry Summers Tony Blair era of yeah. of, of of neoliberalism but I what I'm saying is that the nature of 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 the authority of policymaking I think changed um and during that period there was The self-understanding of of government and I think broadly the sort of public understanding of it was that um, we can take certain questions out of the realm of political conflict because uh, there is a sort of body of evidence that underlies them and therefore we don't need to kind of dispute and discuss them the whole time clearly we are not in that kind of era right now. (laughs) Barely anything is outside the realm of political and democratic conflict right now. I mean, Nigel Farage can turn around and say that what's reported on Channel 4 News is not outside of the realm of political conflict and that he doesn't agree with it because Channel 4 News is a Remainer organisation or whatever it might be, or that the the Bank of England is is a Remainer organisation. And and I mean, this cuts in other ways as well. I mean, after all, a lot of Remainers have accused the BBC of of being biased against Remain recently and so on. So my, my point is simply about the relationship between the Spaces that we consider to be amenable to expert um, judgment. We kind of almost we don't necessarily give them a monopoly over it, but we say. This is a technical issue in the same way that, um, that that we might treat the question of you know handling of I don't know the sewage system or right. something like that as a matter yep. that experts have some kind of monopoly over, and we don't want to all discuss it the entire time on Newsnight. And we, but and then there's a space of, of political disputes. And clearly, what we've witnessed over the last decade erupting in the populism of the present is a, a great expansion of the, the realm of things that are considered to be political, such as you know vaccinations or this sort of thing.
4: Yes, it's a question of the extent to which people believe there is a form of expertise that wouldn't inevitably be weaponized by the people who wield it.
2: Yeah, uh, and also I suppose, you know, crucially with this populist moment is, and this is partly thanks to things like social media and it's to do with some of the sorts of voices that social media has allowed to, to enter um, a political or public debate, is that culture has obviously become the dividing line in many ways such that if it turns out that journalists... Um, scientists, politicians, regulators, university lecturers, all have similar sorts of education, all tend to live in similar sorts of houses and similar sorts of places, all perhaps all have similar views about <laughs> the membership of the European Union, then it becomes possible to say that this is a cultural um, elite, uh, perhaps even a conspiracy, because these people have all these things in common. And therefore, it's really no surprise that they all seem to reinforce one another's view of the world. And therefore, they should be treated with some suspicion. Now, that is something that I think social media has, it's not the cause of it, but it's for facilitated that that possibility, and that is a sort of radicalization of a level of, of, of skepticism that obviously um, populists and and online conspiracy theorists exploit
4: I mean your, your book has this vast you know historical mm, sure. um, scope to it. I think it kind of begins in the kind of early modern era right, yeah. um, 16th century mm, if you go definitely. back it's, it's interesting to compare your your analysis of expertise with the period that preceded that religious authority which sure. basically you had a, an elite that owned all the land. Mm. That 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 were the only people who were literate, who basically had a framework of understanding the world that nowadays, mm. according to the forms of expertise that dominate nowadays, we would we would say has very little relationship mm. to empirical fact. Yeah, and it it does seem like there's a sense in which new forms of authority are emerging. Mm.
2: The history of this, I think, is interesting, and I think it's important to kind of. Um, sort of map it out very sort of briefly so I think I mean so that's right so the, the late 17th century which is often considered to be the time of the, the scientific revolution but, but it's also when you get these kind of original sort of expert clubs as they were like the Royal Society and also the sort of these kind of bourgeois um, Bank of England Bank of England 1694 yeah. um, but you get these kind of mercantile communities and networks that mm. meet in, in in coffee shops in London uh, around sort of industries such as insurance and this sort of thing and they're sort of like kind of some they're a little bit like sort of Silicon Valley geeks in a way, because they're interested in mathematics and geometry and in the application of mathematics and geometry to the study of, of, of problems of insurance, but also the problems of things like demography and this sort of thing. So how can we put this mathematical analysis to work in subjecting society and questions of politics to the same type of Objective rationalist analysis that people like galileo and um, and early anatomical experts, such as William Harvey and others had had applied mathematics to the human body or the stars and so on um, and this was obviously groundbreaking, and much of what we now assume much of what you know is makes up the content of the financial Times and this sort of thing is really the legacy of that kind of Moment where people began to apply mathematics to the study of human interactions at at, at mass scale, Um, and it was revolutionary in its implications. But but in order to work, I mean, it had to be kind of quite tight knit communities. I mean, it's not like I mean the the sort of knowledge and the sort of um, privilege involved in getting into those communities was quite high. They were quite exclusive in various ways, and in order to get anyone to listen to them or or believe any of it was also quite difficult. I mean, there had to be something in it for the for the king or the ruler in order for, for for this knowledge to be used. Now so that's a kind of moment where I think you see the birth of a kind of technocracy. Going back to what you were saying earlier about sort of alternative forms of authority, the alternative, the sort of resistance against that type of authority came much later. I mean, in a way, the sort of nationalism... As many historians of nationalism have endlessly pointed out, nationalism is a distinctively modern, or even anti-modern, movement which re- re- rebels against that particular vision of a sort of technocratic governmental state by trying to appeal to some sort of community of of identity and affect and language and and culture, and it's also. Always been a sort of something which operates via non-verbal means of flags, music, um, uh, feelings, and so on, um, and that's a, a 19th century uh, phenomenon. And I think that nationalism has always been, uh, in some ways, kind of post-truth in the sense that we, we this term is now being used, in, in, in as much as it it has to dispute that statistical expert view of facts by painting visions of the past that are not amenable to kind of scholarly or Im- empirical analysis. What we're grappling with here are different ways of, of telling the story of who we are collectively.
4: So just to go back to the medieval, mm. the mm. idea of the medieval mm. friar or the, or the priest, yeah. that they're making basically unfalsifiable claims mm. about the world, mm. upon which this this layered hierarchy rests. So so we, we already know historically, across all civilizations, you know, that there, there's an element in which expertise can be structured in such a way that has no relationship to what we would now think of as meaningful truth about how the world was created and so on. Just to bring it back to the kind of modern example, mm. if you are an expert in something based on facts and statistics, all, all the claims you make are, are constantly scrutinised by mm. fellow experts and they'll have all these nuanced points of disagreement mm. with all the other experts Yeah, because they're dealing with the real world. Yeah, if you If you construct some notion of expertise that isn't amenable to Hmm. falsification. Especially via the scientific method, you're, you're kind of you've actually got potentially a more stable That's form right. of authority there, right?
2: The term expert we often forget um, has the same root as the term experience. So that to be an expert is is to be someone who experiences things via observation, experimentation, and so on, but then records them uh, and shares those recordings with other experts. They don't generally are not doing it in order to share them with the general public, which is one of the reasons why populism is able to sort of attack experts, is that generally experts are speaking to one another. They're not speaking to sort of ordinary people. Um, Now, I think that you know the, the achievement of modern science is to establish these various networks that you're referring to of peer review and of publishing and of uh, accreditation, where um, false claims or experiences that can't be replicated get found out. Now, if someone cheats and says they they witnessed something and they didn't, um, then of course that completely throws a, a massively sort of disrupts the entire project of science. Um, so there's a kind of good faith requirement in all of this. As someone who is appealing, I suppose. Firstly, to a different vision of what experience is, i.e. the experience of the everyday, is, which is um, if someone says, look, I've heard all this stuff about climate change, but did you see how cold it was last winter? That is a sort of um, appeal to an experience, but it's not a, the appeal to, to regulated experience that goes on within the laboratory with the, with the models and, and so on.
3: And we see that a ha- lot. By That's a very classic political trope yeah. at the moment. You see... On both sides of the spectrum, you see people making jokes like that all the time. So this is a kind of conflation of the two, isn't it? It's it's really interesting. Yeah, and you still have our political leaders who should be appealing to authority and data tweeting, oh, it's really hot.
2: Yeah, it's a very easy card to play because it has the immediate appeal of democracy about it. So if Matteo Salvini or someone says something like this, it shows he's on the side of ordinary Mm. people. Whereas if Hillary Clinton uh, says, um, well, actually, climate change is real unfortunately the only ways we know about climate change the only reason climate exists as an object at all is because of computer models that exist in particular universities and you know in remain voting towns and that sort of thing. So there is a kind of immediate sort of democratic problem there. The same is true with vaccinations is that you know your child can be perfectly well and someone wants to come and shove a needle in their arm and it's like well where's my experience or my child's experience in all of this what whose experience is it that actually counts in all of that. So I think that there is a sort of fundamental problem of democracy that expertise has faced right from its inception at that particular moment at the end of of religious conflicts of the the, the 17th century. Now, I think one of the arguments I tried to draw out in the book is that if we think about what is the political um, validity of expertise and we just say, "Oh well, because it's true, um, that encounters immediate political problems. But I think that what expertise... a a pragmatist way of understanding expertise is not that it it sort of captures truth, but that it it is the basis of of shared understanding of the world and of of agreements across different cultures and and, and moralities and and, and religious beliefs and so on.
3: It was quite interesting, actually, because Tom and I went to Atlanta for the Mm -hmm. American Economics Conference Forum, which is kind of mecca for the American economics profession, which I'd never really thought about as a kind of, body of people. Mm. Because in an economic profession in the UK, like there are great economists at teaching at great universities, Mm. but the kind of incentives of being an economist in America are completely different. You know, you can do outside research for a bank and you can sit on the board of a private equity group and earn vast sums of money, but also earn vast sums of money just being a teacher in Chicago. And it was and, you know, it's kind of you're right. A lot of it struck me as this kind of um, some of the most ferocious arguments I've ever seen mm-hmm. at, were at that conference. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Um, and it seemed very in inward facing. But I do think there is some recognition at the fringes now that like that kind of, let's call it like modeled view of the world just isn't quite holding anymore. And I think a lot of younger economists were about as fed up as,
2: yeah, I mean, I think the problem you know. is that, to my mind, anyway, as a, as a as someone who, I mean, my PhD is in sociology, and and um, uh, my my job title includes political economy. Um, but I mean, I think that you know one of the things is that what e- economics has gone looking for some engagement with reality via psychology and neuroscience and this sort of thing, rather than possibly looking outwards into society and mm. thinking about politics. I mean, there's no sense in which, I mean, I, Okay. So there's a I not know how you about s-
3: place in no. Economics, no. Well, right? I mean, there like, is some
2: sort of there is a kind of sort of neoclassical economic geography, but I think that I mean something like politics is just far too exogenous for it to be yeah. able to kind of get yeah. to be able to kind of combine in a way that sort of the brain or you know even sort of um, particular sort of um, you know neurochemicals or, or, or aspects of the body are actually sort of more easy yeah. to model and uh, more easy to bring into models than yeah than, I mean, than, than
4: political economy. I mean, and and something like economics you know that the, as you say there's been this this uh, late 20th century association of economics with science and with empiricism mm. but if you if you if you go to that kind of conference or if you speak to people who are involved in policymaking you know it, it does begin to look more like a kind of debating mechanism within bureaucratic decision-making sure. so you've got a bunch of people sitting around the table you're saying what should we do to the school system in you know Alabama mm. um, you know that that's a kind of. I mean, you could have a, you could have all the experts in the world mm. working several lifetimes, and you're never going to come. In, in fact, the more people you have, the less clear a conclusion you're going to come to. Yeah, the, yeah. the lesson the lesson of engaging with expertise is not consensus, but 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 infinite points of emerging disagreement, mm. right? Yeah. So so you've got this problem. You're sitting around a table. You've got this completely impossible solution, and, and there's really two ways around that. You can have someone with enough authority in the room to just go with what they want to do and override everyone else. And if you don't have that authority, which that authority, you know, over hundreds of years has been diminished, political authority in individuals in in some countries has been diminished, in others it's reasserted itself again, um, you need to solve the problem of how you're going to make a decision. So So economics begins to be this way of Mm. marshalling evidence which, you know, I'm not saying it's arbitrary, but to Mm. some extent you just have this pragmatic problem of how is this decision and and, and perhaps no one in the room really believes that the evidence the economic evidence on the table is really a true per se it's it's swaying the room towards a particular outcome that someone already wanted to happen
2: yeah I mean I think that in some ways economics I mean when I I was doing my, my PhD back in sort of well, before the financial crisis, but I, I did some interviews with with economists who had become policy advisors to, to talk to them about this issue. And I mean, a lot of what the, the, the sort of thoughtful and, and honest kind of interviewees would say is that it's a sort of, um, well, it's what, what Ludwig Wittgenstein would have called a language game in the sense that it sort of creates a set of, conceptual tools that everybody around the room sort of commonly understands and recognizes so that you can talk about things like market failure and uh, elasticity and this sort of stuff. And I think that what kind of worked quite successfully for New Labour for a few years was that you had these kind of sort of elite kind of um, rooms of, of people like David Miliband and, and Ruth Kelly and these sorts of people who all could speak that particular kind of language. And it made, no doubt, for for in many ways, very good policymaking because there was a certain sort of consensual view about the nature of the problems at stake and so on. Now, it didn't mean that it was kind of evidence-based in the pure, we will do exactly what some sort of utilitarian machine kind of spews out as being the optimal option. But it nevertheless had a certain sort of, um, it was paradigmatic in a sense. Now, I think where being evidence-based has really has got bite... But I think this shows us also about something about the status of expertise in, in society today, is where data um, and we, you've talked about education a couple of times is is used to sort of quite aggressively and sometimes surreptitiously audit people. You know, you hear of how Amazon workers are being kind of surveilled in ways that they don't under, they don't know about. They are sacked for reasons they don't fully understand. Um, Teachers are driven to huge levels of stress in this country by the data culture pushed by Ofsted, which is in its turn pushed by the Department of Education. So the data trail that we leave around behind us the entire time, we know that that has effects for us. It has effects on our credit rating. It has effects on our employability. It has effects in all these kind of ways. And this, I think, is, a, is where uh, I'm not saying that sort of the anti-expert kind of turn is really a sort of anti kind of data analytics turn. But nevertheless, I think that that's where, uh, you know, that is a different sort of Culture of, of of facts and figures, where the person collecting the the data is not in the business of producing public facts in the way that the Office of National Statistics is trying to kind of create a kind of common framework for the for, for politicians to then argue within, or that you know the Financial Times is trying to kind of publish market information that is available to everybody. It is trying to generate data that will have create information asymmetries fundamentally in the sense that it was like right, we're going to hoard all this data so that we have power over you. That's what it's kind of what Ofsted is doing to schools or Amazon is doing to its employees or um, uh, and so I think that th- we 're living in a culture where data has been sort of you know it 's an overused term but weaponized in that way and sometimes t- using quite punitive terms to actually make people um, sort of i suppose be held to account in ways that then isn 't entirely transparent to them and i think that 's a whole new kind of phase in this
4: yeah, in this that, development that, and that 's very interesting that 's really a, a long term culmination of, of centuries of mm.
3: Improved technologies of measurement yeah. and, and recording. Yeah. And I mean, so you used to know when people clocked in and out at work, right? Yeah. That was the yeah. kind of first step of that in the Ford factory. You did yeah. your eight hours and then you left. So yeah. it's really just a continuation of that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's yeah. all
4: these technologies all over the place, re- measuring and recording, and, and obviously, um, social media and smartphones are a big part of that but you know as an employee of a university the example always springs to my mind with this kind of thing is university rankings because it seems to capture what's going on with a lot of expertise which is that the mechanism of university rankings is still a very powerful force even if no one at any university believes in them which they don't yeah because they're, they're arbitrarily constructed there's all these there's all these kind of imperfect weightings. You you'll you have a conversation with someone and they'll say, these university rankings are nonsense. Mm. And a day later, they'll say, we're absolutely delighted. We're sure. third in the league table.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is, you know, um, this is, <laughs> welcome to my world. I mean, um, <laughs> it, it, this is, um, uh, you know, this stuff has had a, a, a very pernicious influence. There's a, there's a sociologist in the United States called Wendy Espeland who's actually written about how, uh, particularly law schools, uh, she, it was her case of how the major strategic decisions get, taken on the basis of of, of, of where um, ranking performance is, is is falling down and so on. Um, and while I'm no friend of rankings, I mean, one thing I would add is that at least the methodology is transparent for these things. But I think we are entering a, a phase, which is the Silicon Valley business model. And this is been described by Sashana Zuboff as a surveillance capitalism where there is a sort of drastic asymmetry between the the measurer or the quantifier and the quantified Um, and we're all sort of distantly aware of that we can't go through our lives feeling paranoid about it the entire time but in particular environments you know we've used the example of data in schools and so on Um, there is a sort of I think um, you know uh, I mean children themselves are being constantly sort of you know being being assessed the entire time without really being aware of that it's very different from from the sort of experience of exams that I think much of our generation knew, which was, oh, there's going to be this big test. I'm really anxious. Now it's sort of constant sort of evaluation in ways that people aren't really aware of. now, I think that that is a sort of new era of of sort of numbers that that's arisen, which um is partly a a symptom of the fact that that data now accumulates often by default in various ways. Um, And I think that, um, I mean, there was a a trial that Ofsted was interested in in doing in relation to schools where it would use machine learning algorithms to actually scrape data from things like message boards and social media to see if if people were were complaining about a school and that sort of thing. So, I mean, this is a a different era altogether.
4: But, but, I mean, people are kind of crying out for something to cling to Mm. that seems to be reliable or true or empirical, right? Because otherwise the world's just this chaotic sure. Sure. void. Yeah. So it seems to me university rankings are very, very similar to mm. GDP in that respect. Mm. You've, again, you've got university administration, they're sitting around the table, they've got the problem of decisions to be made. As earlier, it's incredibly difficult to make decisions, you yeah. could spend a lifetime discussing it. The the mere existence of this ranking system, even if it's completely untrue or completely arbitrary, Mm. which I'm not saying it is, but even if it is, is a a powerful and useful mechanism in facilitating decisions. Everyone buys into, everyone willfully suspends disbelief Mm. for a moment Mm. so they can actually do something. Similarly with GDP, you know, you've got politicians sitting around, you've got an enormous country of 60 million people. How on earth are you ever going to have a a 1% of Mm. a fraction of a clue about what to do about it? Even if GDP is a completely flawed mechanism insofar as its various complications kind of cancel out its benefits, it it still has this practical... Of course, um, that's right.
2: And I think it sort of creates that sort of... I mean, we live in an era now of a sort of data deluge where there is too many things that we could be paying attention to and there is huge... Authority and and um, comfort in things that that reduce that and, and say pay attention to this uh, and and there are certain sort of political leaders who who succeed at that uh, kind of win various dividends but so do no doubt kind of media institutions and and, and um, uh, consultants that say that this is what you've got to pay attention to these are your KPIs or whatever you want, want to call it I think that um, one of the challenges we face in all of this at the moment and I'm sure this is a big thing for, for newspapers I think is managing not to pay attention to things that that we Kind of could but probably shouldn't, sort of thing. So, you know, for, actually, newspapers know that people are much more interested in kind of watching um, strange videos about dogs or whatever than they are at, at um, paying attention to the latest um, uh, sort of uh, turgid Brexit news from from Westminster or something. Now, does that mean that you should put the the, the, the video of a, a dog um, as to your front page? Well, obviously not, but there is a kind of obviously a question of degree about that kind of thing. And that goes down to think-
3: incentives as well, right? Because yeah. obviously for newspapers that rely exclusively on advertising money, mm. proving that you get clicks yeah. and likes or whatever mm. or comments for us. It's the proof. It's the proof, the proof of mm. quality. And yeah. I think the same with university rankings, right? Like you can, like, if if a chancellor is boosted the ranking by 10 mm. places in three years, he can go, well, I did a great job. Yeah, And sure. the same with GDP growth. It's like, yeah. everyone knows GDP is good at capturing one thing but doesn't mm. reflect mm. prosperity, mm. really. But like, that doesn't mean that, like, thoughtful Democrats or thoughtful Republicans don't point at Donald Trump's GDP record sure. and go, look what he's done, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. and the same with Obama, you know, it's just that that, that line. So, sure. yeah. I yeah. mean, not to sound, ironically, not to sound too economics about stuff, because obviously incentives mm. are a big part of economics, mm. but it's kind of interesting in that way how much these imperfect measurements are like, it's when they become canon, it's like the best we've got, right? Mm.
2: But I guess my, my point was partly that, We've crossed some sort of threshold where in the past, I think a lot of um, sort of there were a lot of ethical demands that we measure more or different things, i.e. measure things like, you know, feminist economists saying that we need to start measuring the value of of, of unpaid labour because um, GDP doesn't capture this. And this is a, a patriarchal institution to not capture that value. But now you take something like should Employers um, or immigration officials be able to sort of scrape all the data from people's social media use, or, or or should credit raters be able to see the credit rating of someone's friends via Facebook? Which of course, Facebook is all in favour of, of sort of introducing these sorts of um, possibilities. Um, and in a way, the, the the main ethical questions I think we face as a society is more sort of how to sort of not pay attention to certain things or not even have a number produced in the first place. I mean, in universities, um, the government, in an effort really to sort of, I suppose... So undermine the authority of of lecturers as much as anything else. Particularly, I think in the humanities, if you ask me, um, commissioned this research from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which showed the uh, return on investment of, of of different subject areas across the UK. Uh, which, of course, surprise, surprise, doing stand, financial economics turns it. out to be a better earner than, than studying ancient history. Um, but I mean, this is also does some kind of, and you could say, well, just ignore it. Well, it's like, no, but you can't ignore it. Once it's out there, you can. There is then a discourse saying that actually. Actually, financial economics is a degree that is four times as good as ancient Greek, or probably more than four times. But you know, so, way more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's you know, the, 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 I would argue that there, there are ethical questions right now about the commissioning of that sort of thing. Now, um, and where so, the focus,
3: and where the yeah. focus is as well, right? So yeah. it's all come to a judgment over like, again. Back to like what we take as mm. important, and what we what we don't. Um, I'd like to quickly just like talk mm. about a little bit about social media because we sure. haven't we've touched on it a little bit, but I do think plays a big part in your book looking at the kind of social media landscape as it is and the kind of role it's had on in a way kind of giving us mass democracy in the way that we have now more competing voices than ever mm. and you know someone who voiced in politics before was a vote every five years can now shift opinion or put humiliation onto someone or mm. and vice versa and I was just wondering like to what extent do you think social media has played in this kind of collapse in the kind of you know, let's go back to the technocratic Mm, um, apparatus of the state.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, I think social media has been crucial. I think it's important to sort of realise that we're including things like YouTube in all of this. Video, I think, is very important. I would also say that smartphones are very important um, in the sense that they, I think, have shifted, the kind of ideas of of truth have shifted. Um, I mean, for most people, that's not necessarily the case, but there is clearly a a large section of society out there that um, believes that the way to know what's really going on in the world is not to accept what journalists and uh, the liberal elites and the officials and the politicians, at least of all the politicians, uh, say to you, but is to get something that is sort of unmediated, which is what it appears when somebody produces video content of something. And this, of course, in the extreme case, kind of produces a sort of um, conspiracy theory mindset in which kind of everything is a sort of, you know, the BBC and Channel 4 and and, and so on are, are all part of some kind of remain conspiracy. But I think it all has also uh, created a sort of shift in our understanding of of what is the sort of, I suppose, the gold standard of truth. Gold standard is maybe a strong term, but, but the sort of measure of, of of what we consider to be credible. Um, because in a in an age where we there was no alternative really than to than to rely on sort of the BBC or whatever it might be for view of the world um that Maybe people were sort of skeptical to about it, but they didn't. Ha- there wasn't sort of someone offering a sort of Alternate sort of view. alternative yeah. direct relationship to what's really going on on the ground. And I think that on the margins is doing huge work right now. And I think someone like Farage um, and, and, and Trump uh, and other populist leaders such as Salvini and others are very good at exploiting all of that. So I think that's that's very important. And obviously, I think um, social media has had positive and negative effects in terms of the massive opening up of the public sphere to, to a range of voices. I mean, what we, we've called the liberal public sphere since that period of the late 17th century I was talking about earlier has always been channeled through uh, some pretty tightly restricted bottlenecks of publishers, um, the printing press,
4: these expert societies, universities. And isn't also social media makes it very much easier to illustrate the, the inevitable flaws in, in going about any of these mm. processes. So if you, if you want to write an article about something that summarises what's going on in Doncaster mm. and you've got Twitter and everyone mm. from Doncaster can write whatever they want about the article, it, it is a certainty that you'll have missed lots of angles about Doncaster as an, as an individual reporter in yep. Doncaster there for three days, you, you know, I mean there's no counting the mistakes mm. you're going to make of emphasis sure. uh, and historically there was no feedback for that. And, and this is really true of every sphere. I mean, because one of the interesting paradoxes that comes mm. out of your book is on the one hand, you've got these formerly fringe, now ascendant forces on the populist right and the, and the populist left that critique the center and these mm. institutions, these, let's say, upper middle class institutions mm. of the, that dominate the 20th century. And on the other hand, in, in daily experience, the greatest um, and most forceful critiques of these institutions come from the expert center themselves. So as a journalist, if you write an article about mm. central banking, you and and you and and someone who is an expert in central banking reads it, they will find a lot of flaws in it. Yeah. Um, if you go and see a GP and your dad's a GP, mm. and you go home and tell them what they did, your dad will say, "Oh, they got this wrong. They got that wrong." So th- there's this sense that previously there was a very uh, contained mm. role for criticism. Yeah. But these processes are all actually. And always have been flawed, and it's just sure. the flaws of. Sure. So you could apparent.
2: say, I mean, that would be the sort of the optimistic take on this, and this was what sort of a lot of the kind of you know, early um, positive views of the internet or World Wide web in the 1990s and so on argued with, and this was a kind of a wisdom of crowds kind of view is that there was a slogan associated with um, open source software, I think in the eighties or nineties, which was with enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. And this was the idea being that if you open up your, your software to, to a broad community, people are going to spot the, the mistakes and correct them. And this is good. Um, and that's sort of Wikipedia is the kind of perfect example of that kind of thing. And so you could say, okay, so the journalist goes to Doncaster, writes their piece Gets told that they've got various things wrong, and they they correct them. Now, of course, that's not, <laughs> I imagine, not being a journalist how how it tends to work, which is you go to write your piece, and um, a considerable amount of discontent rains down on this sort of the
4: bias and the yeah. um, the, the censorship. It's and prob- the eliminate- problems of emphasis rather than problems of fact, right? So, exactly. So people will say um, people will say you've gone to this disused factory in Doncaster and you've held it up as an example of industrial decline in Doncaster, right. but everyone knows. That the point will be made with different language, but in, in, in journalistic language, they will be saying that is not a good yeah, uh, exactly. microcosm yeah. for the economy of Doncaster.
2: So this is this is an example. I mean, one of the, the issues I think this takes us to, and I mean, we've talked about this in lots of ways, is the sort of fundamental crisis of, of representation that we're encountering as a society, and not just in the political sense of those representatives don't speak for me, but that. Um, you know that factory in Doncaster it doesn't represent Doncaster so there is a sort of a um in a sense of what types of stories about the world are considered adequate pictures of the world in a philosophical sense and I think that this is what is being uh, challenged the entire time not only in relation to things like statistics GDP does not capture the the truth about the the UK economy Uh, that parliament doesn't capture the truth about UK society that the BBC does not capture the the, the truth about uh, everyday news and I think that one of the things that social media does is to generate constant controversy about what a representative example or story might be because everybody can always challenge as you say the, the, the emphasis and I think that this is the issue which is that the the authority of those let's call them liberal elites whatever you want to call them but of of, of the figures who are tasked with producing accurate pictures of the world whether as journalists or as experts um, or as um, statisticians or as scientists and so on, is being challenged in, in fundamental ways. Now a lot of that challenging for, for reasons that I've already mentioned is, is deserved and necessary and after all we know that journalists and, and other other uh, figures in, in the um, uh, sort of public life have made terrible errors in the past um, for which they deserve to pay but I think that there is, I think now a sort of a radicalization of, of skepticism and of critique which means that people now in in ways that you sort of this example you're you're, you're using uh, suggests uh, are unwilling to ever accept um a sort of an official or a professional account of a reality to actually because of the what it leaves out and of course, all storytelling involves the leaving out of what is considered to be deta- of other details. There is no uh, map of the world that is identical to the world. Um, I think one of the problems we're currently facing is that for those working in Silicon Valley, they think there is because with enough sensors in our environment and on our bodies and so on, eventually they think they're going to get everything. And that, I think, is the sort of conflict we're facing.
3: Well, it was great to have you. Great. It's been a pleasure. Um, and uh look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, thanks very thanks much. Thanks, Will. Cool. bye-bye.
1: Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards of the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us at alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all.